Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It is the 2nd of October, 2019, especially Wednesday. Um, A tweet by the president that uh, you need to be aware of because um, he has a massive Twitter following. And and because things that the president says matter— and so I'm going to I'm going to read these two tweets. I'm going to read them together. Um, and then uh, I'm going to tell you about an urgent meeting that's being held today in Washington, D.C. Um, <clears throat> the president tweeted out, as I learn more and more each day, I am coming to the conclusion that what is taking place is not an impeachment. It is a coup. Uh, by the way, coup is in all caps intended to take away the power of the people, their vote, their freedoms, second, the their Second Amendment religion, military, border wall, and their God-given rights as a citizen of the United States of America. Um, We would need like a six-hour show today to actually unpack all of that and deal with it. But let me begin by saying this. Um, Our democracy is only at risk if the people of the United States um, fail to be a rightly ordered representative democracy. And um, and the word coup is inappropriately used here um, in, in the same way that uh, a reference to a civil war like fracture was inappropriate, uh, inappropriately used over the weekend by a pastor on television. Um, these words don't help. And so uh, I want us to be people today who are careful with our words. M- most importantly, be careful with the word of God and be an agent of it in the world today. So the State Department's Inspector General is holding an urgent briefing today with senior congressional staff members in a secure location. Um, eight committees are involved. They, uh, eight committees are going to be briefed. The House and Senate Foreign Affairs, House and Senate Appropriations, House and Senate Intelligence Committees, House Oversight, and Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs. Why does this matter? Um, because Congress is on recess, technically. And so uh, for the uh, State Department's IG to be holding an urgent, basically secret briefing in a secure location um, for all of these committees. And and obviously the senior staff members of the committees will be there if the members of Congress cannot. But I guarantee you that most of them who uh, who got this uh, notification yesterday are probably uh, very uh, seeking to scurry back to D.C. as quickly as possible. Here's going to be my question for the day. Um, I'm going to ask it in every segment. Do we care about the truth? And do we care about the truth more than we care about whatever our particular ideological or political affiliations are? Do are we going to be people of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help us, God. Um, I don't I don't know where the truth uh, will lead other than to say that I know that the truth will lead to the one who is the way and the truth and the life. I am a follower of the one who is the truth, 
I am a, a, an agent of the one who brings the truth to bear on all things. There's only you know one group of people who hide from the truth, and um, they are the ones who are the advocates of the father of lies. And I'm I'm not participating in that. Uh, does that make me unpopular? Mm, yes, many days. That's okay with me. All right, so uh, Peter Kapsner is going to be here in just a minute. He's going to be joining us via Skype today. He and I are going to wander around in the question about the truth, whether or not the truth matters, uh, how we are seekers of it, how do we pursue it, how do we uh, sow it, how do we become purveyors of the truth, all of those conversations up next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Welcoming Peter Kapsner uh, back. He's not really in the house today. He is uh, on Skype. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning, Peter. No, of course, Carmen. And boy, you sure uh, picked a really easy topic to bite off and chew on today. That's uh, that's pretty simple on pursuing truth and what that means. Uh, right? I mean, uh, right. <laughs> we um, we are either people of the truth or we are people of lies. And right. there really is no uh, I mean, you know, we might like to think that there's some wiggle room. There's some way to ways to be, oh, you know, half truth people or. Um, uh, or just white lie people. But, you know, here's the reality. It's either truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, or it it's a lie at some right. level. And um, I think that we have fooled ourselves into believing there's some kind of spectrum upon which, you know, as long as we're not lying as egregiously as others, or as long as we're lying for some good reason, we're okay. Well, I think, I think that's totally it. And I think what we see, Carmen, and you reference it in forms of political leadership, but I see it in business leadership and uh, oftentimes, unfortunately, in church leadership, too, is that, you know, lying is hardly ever just the blatant, I stare you in the eye and just a, a, a bald faced lie. That's, it's hardly ever that, though it can include that. It's sort of the subtlety of people in power in this particular case, but then we do it in all of our relationships where we kind of spin different facts. We sort of emphasize certain things, maybe omit other things. We, uh, it, it's all through the lens of sort of this almost valued art of persuasion that people empower. And then it bleeds down into our relationships is that we want to persuade one another. And, and the way we do that is by sort of spinning the facts ever so slightly, you know, little shades of gray here and there, uh, not necessarily again, black and white, but it kind of spins up and whips up this weird gray, can't really see the way forward atmosphere. And and everybody's doing it. I mean, if you, you can hardly read an unbiased sort of article, you can hardly, again, I've been in church meetings and there's a sense in which, well, we just got to get the congregation to buy in. And so if we do it this way or say it that way or present it this way, we're going to get them to buy in through persuasion or business marketing. I've often wondered, Carmen, if marketing in and itself is something that can be consistent with the kingdom just because you're always sort of reading the psychology of people and trying to persuade them and spend their decision making accordingly. So I think we to you I think you've raised a really important question and I think the ways in which the father of lies spins himself through our society is much deeper and more ingrained than we may realize. Okay, I'm because you brought up marketing, I'm going to take two minutes to tell a story that people may have heard before, but may not remember in this context. 
Love um, it. Back, I mean, it's, it's almost 100 years ago. So it's like it's the very early 1930s. Um, uh, off the top of my head, I'm probably not going to remember his name, uh, but I can Google it. Herbert Taylor. Herbert Taylor um, had a company that was called Club Aluminum. Club Aluminum was headed um, very quickly toward bankruptcy. Of his 250 employees, um, he was the only person who had any hope that the thing could be turned around. Mm-hmm. But he had no idea. He had no idea how. And so, um, uh, okay, now I've got the story in front of me. I'm just going to read this part. Um, he said, "Look, uh, my first my my first job would be uh, to set policies for the company that would reflect the high ethics and morals that God would want for any business. So, if the people who worked for me and Club Aluminum were were to think right, then I knew they would then do right." So what we needed was a simple, easily remembered guide to right conduct. People are going to now know what he came up with um, from Rotary because that's who uses this as their four-way test. Um, but it, 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 were the, it was these four questions. And by the way, he like read he read a number of business books, marketing books, because that was his area of expertise. Um, and he he couldn't. He says, I searched through many books for the answer to our need, but the right phrases simply eluded me. And so I did what I often do when I have a problem I cannot answer myself. I turned to the one who has all the answers. Yeah. I leaned over my desk. I rested my head on my hands in prayer. And after a few moments, I simply looked up and reached for a white card. This is what I wrote. Number one, is it the truth? Number two, is it fair to all concerned? Number three, would, will it build goodwill and better friendships? And number four, will it be beneficial to all concerned? Mm. He, then test, he then tested himself on this, and marketing was the first area he tested this in. He, he scrutinized the marketing of their company and he he absolutely if it didn't if it if it if it could not clearly be said that it was it was the truth and that it was fair to all concerned fair to their competitors then he changed it yeah and that it didn't is, take very, I, I mean it didn't take very long for the company to turn around um yeah um and therefore to be buy in and you know and it's now the 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 rotary four way test but is it the truth is the lead off in that and it's a marketing question as much as it is a question for each one of us as we walk around in the world it is. That is a powerful, I, I confess I haven't heard of that before, and that is a powerful paradigm and a powerful methodology by which to sort of test yourself in your relationships. And and if you are in a place of leadership or if you're a teacher in a school or wherever, even a parent, right? I mean, you know, sometimes we struggle to wonder, so how do we talk with our kids truthfully and honestly? And And that sort of methodology you laid out is really helpful for sort of discerning whether or not I'm walking in places that are the truth. And the funny thing is, Carmen, you sort of know the truth when you bump up against it, don't you? I mean, when people are acting in the ways that uh, that Taylor is suggesting there, um, it, there's sort of a freedom about it. There's a sense of peace about it. Uh, it may be hard to say it, but uh, but there's there's nothing left that you're spinning about. And I just feel like we're in one massive spin as a society right now where you, you, you can't hardly walk in any sort of sense of freedom or, or peace or wholeness in your spirit because people are not testing themselves these ways. Leaders are not testing themselves these ways. I mean, the the tweets you wrote out and then, of course, the responses, the other sides know better. It's just this huge, big spinniness that that seems to be pervading everywhere. All right. So we're going to I'm going to read the four things again before we go to break, uh, because I do think that it's helpful for people to have some kind of a test against which we, you know, we test. We just test our lives. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? Will it be beneficial to all concerned? Peter Kapsner and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. All right, uh, Peter Kapsner and I are, you know, like we always do, we're talking about stuff. Um, Peter, I want to talk about Bill Maher. 
Um, Bill Maher, for those who don't maybe know him, um, I would describe him as a comedian, um, a political commentator. Um, He hosts a political talk show called Real Time, I think. I think that's the name of his show. Um, And uh, and a late night. um, He he, previously he hosted a show called Politically Incorrect. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of folks who probably don't even know him because they don't have HBO and they don't watch Comedy Central and those kinds of things. But Bill Maher um, is, you know, a frequent critic, not only of um, conservatives and religious people, but of of people who um, who say that they are liberal, but who are not. Um, And so. I sent you this piece. And so for folks who wonder, like, how do how do Peter and Carmen, you know, prepare for their conversations? Well, we send, you know, articles that stimulate our thinking um, back and forth to each other. And so I sent uh, I sent Peter an article um, about Bill Maher. It's actually an interview with him. And I'm going to read one quote from it that really grabbed my attention. He said, we live in an era where I don't think people's main focus is the truth and or sussing out something valuable or teachable. We live in a time in which people are more concerned with scalps and clicks. And by scalps there, he means like the gotchas, uh, the gotchas of the world. Um, How do you I mean, is he right? Are we are we are we have we moved beyond the point where people actually care about the truth? Yeah. From the perspective of history, Carmen, this is the way politics tends to work itself out. I mean, the United States has been a relative anomaly and, and so has Great Britain, for that matter, in terms of its ability to navigate the tensions of disagreement while still maybe going out for dinner afterwards. I mean, that's sort of the classic political thing, right? In, in public, there's profound disagreements and, and pretty heated reg- rhetoric at times. But then you see those same people that are out for dinner. And, and, and I don't think that people are out for dinner afterwards right now. There there has been a shift in the political I, discourse. I mean, some people don't even think that I should be able to go out to dinner. Right. That's, let, I think let that's alone, exactly right. Let alone with somebody who disagrees with me. Right. And that's what I appreciate about Bill Maher. I mean, I'll go back to that in just a minute. But I was just going to say, in terms of this article that you and I have been going back and forth with, is I may not agree with his take on life, and, and I don't know that he's a member of the kingdom and all those sorts of things, but that doesn't stop me from saying that I really appreciate his take because he is willing from an opinion basis to take on both sides. And and I can't remember the last time that I would read the editorial pages of a given newspaper and uh, and and see sort of a balanced take on both sides. It's either going to be a conservative take that's looking to persuade and spin again, or it's going to be a liberal take that's doing that. And and so it's almost refreshing to hear sort of this non-believer, somewhat avowed atheist, to to just present both sides and take them both to tax. I, I really enjoyed this article that he had to say, but Back to the level of discourse, I think where he's right about that is typically speaking, what you see in the realm of politics from a world history standpoint is bloodshed and violence. It's why that idea of a bloodless transition of power is such a powerful one in the United States. The reason it's so powerful is because it's so unique. Typically, this is the way things work. And especially in, in what I've seen, and this is what's caused me pause, Carmen, over the last couple of years, is that the language has gone from disagreement and philosophical difference. You know, we might use those kinds of phrases, disagreement and philosophical difference, and it, it, it has shifted to good and evil. And when you when you shift it to a good and evil moralizing kind of card, then you do dismiss the other side. And it also gives you sort of what you believe to be the moral authority to drive them out. And so President Trump is evil. Uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is evil. Socialism is evil. Capitalism is evil. All of this language back and forth, you then no longer 
who wants to have conversation with evil, right? Why, why would you even entertain it for a second? You sort of stand in your high moral platform of good and then you drive it out. To this point, we've seen the mechanisms of power being wielded across both aisles in pretty substantial ways without violence. But boy, it sure seems like, and especially when you see hashtag Civil War II starting to trend on Twitter, I'm not saying we're heading for bloodshed exactly, but you can see how the seeds of political violence begin to take shape when rhetoric and power plays are maybe not enough to take over the, those uh, echelons of power. Well, and throw in uh, throw in now the word coup, which the president right. introduced that's in a tweet exactly, last night. Yeah, not, yep. not helpful. Not helpful. It's not helpful. Um, that. Yeah, you nailed it on that. When you brought that up, that and, and you see it in, uh, in Boris Johnson over on the United Kingdom side of it with uh, Brexit, is that there was all kinds of uh, blowback when he used the word surrender, because it was sort of this uh, allusion to what the United Kingdom did to Nazi Germany back in the day. So there's military language being in, on, on both sides of the pond right now are happening within some of the most esteemed political structures of the day. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's let's quickly have this this conversation. And I, I've already told our listeners I need like six hours today on air, which right. I don't have. So <clears throat> um, truth. When we talk about truth and we talk about seeking the truth, obviously, there has to be a desire to seek the truth. And then once found, there has to be a willingness to submit to the truth no matter what, because that's going to probably mean a change in my thinking, a change in the way that I live, a change in the way that I approach things in order that I would be aligned with the truth. Um, that's hard. Yes, it is. It is. It, it requires humility, Carmen. I mean, the first, the person who is able to pursue and find and seek the truth is the person who, with humility, sort of steps out of the echo chamber of their own thinking and says, I'm only going to listen to things that I already resonate with and echo with, and sort of opens that door and shuts it behind him. And then with a humble heart, begins to pursue the truth with earnesty and honesty uh, and, and that intellectual honesty that says, wait a second, I agreed with this in the past. But I might have been wrong. Like when you start using those kinds of statements in your life, whether it's a theological pursuit or a relational pursuit or a political pursuit, I don't, I don't care what area it is. If you want to live in the truth, it starts with a heart of humility that says, I may not know everything, because then you can start seeking with some, with some honesty, both in your heart and in your mind. And then um, I think that there are folks who sometimes would say, uh, in fact, I hear them often, you know, like, why do I even read as widely as I read? Um, why am I even listening to these, you know, these pagan voices? Um, right. Remind remind us that, you know, that truth can be found in places other than, right, Scripture. It's not to say that it's true if it is misaligned with Scripture, but truth exists outside the context of of the book. It It exists yeah. throughout creation. Yeah, those are not mutually competing themes. I mean, the scripture can remain authoritative and truthful, and there can be truth that exists outside of it. And theologians talk about the phrases, there's a general revelation and a special revelation. <clears throat> and the special revelation refers to the pages of scripture uh, given by God through the writers of the day. But general revelation are those things that are just simply true that exist outside of the scriptures. And again, to become a person of truth, uh, and I love it, you sent me a, a, a note about it, to become a person of truth is to become a seeker, somebody who who really will pursue it regardless of cost. And if you're not willing to change your mind about things, you will never be a person who will actually find the truth. Well, and I won't be a person who is ultimately a disciple of the one who alone is the way and the truth and the life, because it's his right. mind that I'm seeking to have, not not my own mind, not not a head, not a horse having its own head, um, but a disciple having the very uh, the very mind of Christ uh, as my head. All right, Peter, we're going to have to leave it right there. Um, Always great conversations, always stimulating to our thinking and our faithful living. 
That's Peter Kapsner. All right, we'll talk with you again next week, man. Thank you. Love it, Carmen. Love hanging out with you. Love it as well. All right, we'll be right back. All right, joining me next is Daniel Bennett. Um, he is a politics professor at John Brown University. He's also the assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing. Um, he and I are going to talk about um, Franklin Graham's call for prayer, Nancy Pelosi's call for prayer for the president, what it looks like to pray with our political rivals um, uh, in the same spirit. We're going to talk about uh, when politicians use spiritually charged language. Jeff Flake has said that there is still time. Uh, to save your souls. Um, that's a that's pretty spiritually charged language. And we're also going to talk about what it looks like to operate as a kingdom person, big K, uh, in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Ever let out a big sigh when you're feeling overwhelmed? When it feels like you're carrying the weight of the world around on your shoulders, letting out a big sigh is a way of letting off some steam. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. I'll be honest, sometimes my finances are the reason I'm sighing. Whether it's school loan payments, an unexpected doctor visit, or a car that breaks down at the worst possible moment. So how do you make wise financial decisions when you're stressed all the time? Well, it might be time to ask for help. A Thrivent financial professional can help you think through ways to make sure your finances reflect your faith, how you can navigate your financial journey, and how you can create a financial strategy that aligns with your values. Then you can replace those stress-filled sighs with sighs of contentment and relief, knowing you're being a wise steward of all God has given you. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Uh, I have just learned that it's possible that Daniel Bennett's rooster is not yet up on the rules of radio and that you may hear his rooster in the background of our conversation. Daniel Bennett, welcome back. (laughs) Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me, regardless of the rooster. No. Okay, so I have a rooster. His name is Big Red, and um, he has finally learned the rules of radio. If I am in the little radio studio, which is actually not very far from the chicken coop, um, he has learned that it is better for him to be quiet during this time. Uh, it goes better for him later in the day. They're the affection I show him. Old, so, yeah. <gasps> oh, okay. So they the picture haven't, on, they haven't learned yet. Yeah, the picture on your Twitter feed, which people can follow uh, Daniel Bennett on Twitter at Bennett Daniel. He is a politics professor at John Brown University, which just celebrated its centennial and raised a crazy amount of money. Uh, so we just want to celebrate with you guys. God is obviously laying a future filled with hope in front of you. That's really exciting. Um, and then you're also, uh, you also work with the Center for Faith and Flourishing, and you've got a new book in the works called Uneasy Citizenship, which I can just frankly hardly wait for you to write and publish so I can read. Well, thank you very much. So that's a lot. You've got a lot going on. Um, uh, right. At some point, we'll talk about the varieties of chickens you have, because it looks like you've got sure. some uh, cinnamon queens in there, and uh, we do too. <laughs> Um, but anyway, we'll we'll have that conversation at another time. Let's talk. Um, let's talk politics. Let's talk the intersection of politics and faith. Um, I'm going to start with um, this Franklin Franklin Graham Nancy Pelosi 
uh, clearly two individuals who are identifiable as being on opposite sides of a political aisle. Um, one, very identifiable in terms of uh, the leader of a, of a faith organization, Franklin Graham, head of Samaritan's Purse, also you know, heir to the name, heir to the Graham name, and therefore uh, very identified with his dad. Nancy Pelosi, um, not maybe identified, identifiably with a faith group, but she certainly sees herself not only as a Christian, but um, she she actually uses the, the word evangelical. She speaks regularly to evangelical Christian groups. I would say that um, many of her political commitments are not aligned with um, my faith commitments as an evangelical Christian. But both of them are praying people, and both of them call for prayer for the president and for the nation, no matter who's in the White House. Can we talk about that? Can we talk about the call to prayer and honestly praying across partisan lines? Yeah, we absolutely uh, should be doing that as Christians, regardless of who's occupying the White House. We're not praying necessarily for the individual successes and failures or uh, wins, victories, losses, whatever, uh, in terms of policy, but we should be praying for wisdom, for discernment, that these, uh, that these folks are exercising power uh, for justice, for the things that we're called to love as Christians. So just because we're praying for someone in a position of leadership doesn't necessarily mean we agree with them. In fact, if we disagree with them, all the more reason to pray for them and, and ask that God would lay his hands on them and on those around them. Some of the language... Um I think is different uh, in this generation and certainly today than maybe what some people are even familiar with. And so you and I would be tempted to move into a conversation here about, you know, government really existing to provide for um, the greatest possibility of the widest level of human flourishing, like so that more people in more places can have access to what they need in order to really flourish that is not language that everyone maybe is familiar with, nor would understand in terms of, uh, of of what we think government is for. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the role of government in terms of human flourishing, not just here, but uh, but abroad? Sure. I mean, if you look, I mean, just yesterday, uh, China celebrated the 70th uh, anniversary of the establishment of the, the current system there uh, with military parades and whatnot. Um, and yeah, there's been economic development in China for opportunities that folks wouldn't have had maybe 70 years ago. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, this is an authoritarian regime. Uh, it's hard. You'd be hard pressed to look at China as a model for advancing human flourishing. So governments can play a role in uh, setting up or instituting or at least uh, sustaining an environment where people can flourish uh, individually and then communally. So when it comes to governments, uh, when it comes to understanding government, it's not just about temporary wins and losses. I think we do need to step back and see the big picture of what government should be, uh, or I guess is capable of doing. And when we take that step back, um, I think that when I use the language of kingdoms of this world, I'm generally mm-hmm. talking about sort of the various or the varieties of forms of government around the world. And some of those um, are uh, seem to... Um, be places where people have a greater opportunity to flourish, where there is greater freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And and then there are others that are, you know, what I would just term as repressive. They are designed yeah. to press people down and keep people sure. from flourishing. 
Talk about the difference between being kingdom people, big K, and kingdoms of this world people. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at a government or, or a system that is designed to keep people down, I think North Korea is a really good example of this. I mean, we could talk about the persecuted church there. Uh, but just in terms of the freedoms that people in the West generally enjoy, I mean, they're non-existent. Uh, and, you know, this government not only represses freedoms, but there's imprisonment, there's executions. Uh, it, it's a horrifying situation. So by focusing on kingdoms of this world, I think it's, I think it's okay for Christians to do that, so long as we're coming at that approach from our perspective and identity as kingdom, big K, kingdom people. It's when we lose that first part and start to get involved with the kingdoms of this world for the sake of anything else than promoting, you know, these values that we find in scripture and the, and the values associated with the gospel uh, that I think Christians have a chance to get in some trouble. So then when we distill that down to, you know, just here in the United States of America, I think that what we're what we're trying to point people toward is being people who recognize that there are big K kingdom principles that are more important to us as Christians than, than political parties, um, than political platforms. Um, then, and, and, and we lose, we tend to lose sight of that when we're in these crazy election cycles. Yeah, it's not going to get any easier over the next several months, that's for sure. Uh, we, uh, we get so focused uh, on what's happening in the next year, uh, and it's important, right? We shouldn't shirk away from some of these issues. Uh, but as soon as we lose track of the big issue, the main thing, uh, we have, we're, we're, I think we're more easily tempted into uh, the kingdoms of this world uh, rhetoric that can disrupt what we're meant to be doing as uh, citizens of the kingdom. All right. I am talking with Daniel Bennett. He is a politics professor at John Brown University. He's also the assistant director of the Center for Faith and Flourishing. Um, he and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. I'm going to specifically uh, ask him next about a comment by a former senator that there is still time for uh, members of Congress to save their souls. I'm going to talk about the way spiritual language is used in political discourse today. We'll be right back. If I should speak, then it be of the grace that is Continuing my conversation with politics professor Daniel Bennett. You can follow him on Twitter at Bennett Daniel. You can also find him at, Brown, at John Brown University. Um, Let's have a conversation about the impeachment proceedings, but let's not talk directly about them. Let's let's take a little side angle here in this conversation. Um, a former U.S. senator uh, whose name is Jeff Flake has re- written recently a an opinion piece in The Washington Post. Good morning. Good morning, Rooster. <laughs> He's up. Does he have a name? Does he have a name? Yeah, our kids named him uh, Mr. Rue. Okay, so Mr. Rue is up, and um, at some point, if uh, Big Red wakes up where I live, then we will uh, have an on-air cockadoodle duel. But until then, um, Daniel and I will proceed with our conversation. Okay, so um, so Jeff Flake ha- is not a fan of the president. This is not news to right. anyone. Um, 
And and yet he's he's now using what I would describe as distinctively spiritual language. And that's what's really what I want to capitalize on here. I want to have a conversation about how spiritual language is used in political discourse. And so you can use Jeff Flake's comment about, you know, there's still time for his Republican colleagues to save their souls if you want. Um, or you can just talk generally about the use of spiritual language in, in political discourse today. Right. Well, uh, it's not surprising that elected officials and, and those seeking office would use uh, spiritual or religious language. The U.S. is remarkably religious uh, compared to other Western industrialized countries. And this goes back to the founding era. There's been a lot of research on how officials during the time of the revolution and the, the early era, the early period of American government utilized language from the Bible and language uh, of Jesus to drive home a point. So even if these folks weren't necessarily Orthodox Christians, you know, committed like we would consider to be so-called evangelicals, um, they still understand the value of using religious language to reach a large portion of the population. And I think elected officials have continued that uh, to today. I mean, I'd love to believe that every single occupant of the White House and every single occupant of Congress who utilizes religious language is a committed Orthodox Christian. I think demographics tell us that's not necessarily the case. Um, but there is something about speaking in these in these phrases that speaks to a large portion of the population. Presidents do this. You know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama both famously used religious rhetoric in their addresses. Um, George W. Bush, of course, uh, would would use uh, kind of under the radar, almost dog whistles to evangelicals when talking about issues. And Donald Trump, even, you know, sometimes it's clunky, but he still tries to do this because he knows that it's an effective thing to do. And and so as Christians, um, you know, I think we're we're listening with ears that are sensitive to spiritual language, obviously. Um, but we also need to be listening with with discernment. Sometimes yeah. those that language is used in a way that's authentic and it's honest, and other times it's used almost as like a marketing device. And so yes. when you when you think about how how we listen to um, to politicians today and how we listen to journalists reporting on politicians, what's some what's some listening guidance that you could give us? Well, I think what I would tell my students is don't take uh, a speech or an address in in a vacuum. You need to look at the larger context. So find some other what I would, you know, in the terms of my students, find other sources. So what else is the elected official doing? What are the other uh, statements that he or she is making? Is this a speech designed directly to reach religious communities? Is this just slipping out in their everyday language? Um, if so, that could point to a I mean, a more reliable indicator. But I think we also as Christians, I think you said the magic word, right? Discernment It's kind of this buzzword. But we should be discerning in terms of uh, looking at individual uh, policies and what issues these elected officials support. And even if those issues don't necessarily line up with where we're coming from, uh, as as Christians, or at least in our specific Christian communities, we should also be discerning to say, well, is it is it possible that the way they're talking about this issue actually speaks to where they're coming from as a Christian, uh, maybe from a different Christian community? So I think the church uh, as a whole, it's a broad, broad area. And I think Christians from different areas of that big tent should do a better job listening uh, to the other communities. So uh, there's a presidential uh, candidate on the Democrat side, actually a couple of them, that come to mind yeah. in terms sure. of the, the ease of use of, uh, of religious language. Pete Buttigieg 
very easily uses uh, religious references and religious language. I think sure. it's it is a part of I'm not just a part of who he is. I think it's you know, it's he he is uh, it's woven into the fabric of his identity. He is like a, a legit Episcopalian. And so then the yeah. conversations we have to have are how how has the church in which he was raised and the Christians who have really shepherded him along the way, how has he then arrived at not only his own life choices that, you know, I mean, he's a, he is a man in a same-sex marriage, right? We would say as evangelical Christians, not an expression of a person conformed to Christ uh, or seeking to be conformed to God's best in terms of the design for marriage. Um, And, and that he's, you know, not pro-life in the same way that I'm pro-life. He, he defines that in a very unique and different way. Um, and so is that what you're saying? Like, I have to be able to learn to listen to people, even on the, uh, you know, other side of the political aisle. And if they're claiming to be a Christian and they are using biblical language or language that's grounded in the Bible, I then have to really actually engage more deeply. I cannot just write them off. I have to till that yeah. soil um, more deeply. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I think I think Pete Buttigieg is the is the best example of this right now, at least from someone who's running for president on the Democratic side. You could say Kamala Harris has used religious language pretty effectively as well. Um, Cory Booker. Stand, Cory Booker, yes. He very he's much probably, so he's stands like a, out. A, a preacher, man. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's got it going. Um, but, you know, w- when Buttigieg talks about uh, abortion or same-sex marriage, there is a tendency among conservative Christians or those maybe who'd be more identifiably what we would call evangelical essentially write him off and say, well, and, and I've seen this on social media saying, well, he's, he's an Episcopalian, so he's not really a Christian, right? Um, I think that's a little disingenuous. <laughs> I, think, I think we can and should have tough conversations with those who claim to, to be Christian. Uh, and, and if this is sincere, like I, I do believe it is with, with, with Pete Buttigieg, really try to figure out, okay, how do we bridge this divide then? You know, where are you coming from? And I think you hit it on the head you know, what church were you raised in and how did this affect your values? Um, this doesn't mean that we need to change our views to say, well, if he says he's a Christian and he believes this, then okay, I guess I guess that's the position. But I think we should be more willing to engage and really have those conversations rather than just waving our hands and saying, ah, eh, he, that's not real. Okay, so one final question, because I know that we're, we're you know, we only have limited time today, but I hope you'll come back because I I enjoy having these conversations at the intersection of of politics and religion. And you not only come to this uh, as a student of scripture, but also a student of uh, of of the measurements of America today, uh, you know, of statistics, of research. And I think that there is some research out there that um, I'm going to want to talk about in the coming weeks. Uh, and I feel like you as a conversation partner, it would be really fun to do that. Um, and so I hope that I hope that that is something that uh, interests you as well. Um, but today, as we uh, as we close this conversation, I want you to encourage people simply in the area of why Christians should be political or must be politically engaged. Yeah. Well, uh, I think the easiest answer is, is we're called to be in the world. We're not called to shy away. And being in the world in this day and age means engaging in politics. Politics is a social, the social relationships that we have with one another. That's at the fundamental level of what politics is. I tell my students, you know, you should be engaged. Doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to 
you know, volunteer for a presidential campaign or make phone calls or run for office. But we should be plugged in. We should be talking with others. Just as we, just as we're called to share the gospel, we should be talking with others about what's going on in our world and in our country. Uh, we should be informed. We should be, uh, we we should be making informed decisions when we go out and vote. Uh, and I think we are called to vote uh, and, and do so in a way that points back to to Christ. That doesn't mean Christians are all going to vote in the same way but we should be reflective about these things. So I think a temptation for a lot of Christians, especially those who shun or at least shy away from uh, difficult difficult discourse uh, or for the sake of disagreement just to, or for the sake of maintaining civility, ignore these things. I think it's wrong. I think it's difficult. But I think, goodness, if this is the most difficult thing you do as a Christian, uh, it's really not that. It's really, it could be a lot worse. I think, yeah, and then it's a, that's kind of a, yeah, you're, we're blessed. We're blessed to live in the country that we live in. So I, I would encourage the listeners out there to to really think about what it means to engage politically and have these difficult conversations while pointing back to being kingdom people. That's Daniel Bennett. He is at the Center for Faith and Flourishing. He's also at John Brown University, and he is shepherding chickens, which is important. <laughs> we like that. Well, May your flock flourish. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll be right back. All right. I can't believe that uh, that our first hour is is already gone. Um, yeah, I don't know. Can I make the appeal now? I'm going to need a third hour. I don't know. Paul, what can we bump? I'm just kidding. Okay. So uh, I love being with you. I hope that you have enjoyed the ride the first hour. We've got another hour. Senator um, uh, James Lankford is going to be with us at the bottom of the next hour. And up first is Bill English. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.